Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Yahad Podcast. Eitan Davidov here. And I'm Yehuda Jian with our illustrious Rabbi Abragamov. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me, guys. And we have a wonderful podcast planned today. But first, Rabbi Abragamov, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us about your path to becoming a rabbi? Sure. My family is Sephardic, traditional, a Bukharian background. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Actually, I was born in Crown Heights. Most Chabad rabbis were not, and (laughs) I'm not Chabad, but I certainly have a special affinity for them. Grew up uh, modern and had a very modern upbringing and had lots of questions. My big turning point was in college where some of my friends were going to London to a really big party and the cheapest ticket was something called the Vuza, which is a multi-city ticket. So you would go to New York to Warsaw and Warsaw to London, back to New York. That was like 500 bucks back then, which was like pretty good even compared to today's standards. After spending a couple of days in Poland, there's really not much to see as far as life there, very little culture. So we spent most of our time in bars. And the last day we decided we're going to go do something Jewish, which was an accident because the only really thing, the only thing to see, to truly see, I think in Warsaw at the time was really a concentration camp called Auschwitz. And uh, we went to Auschwitz, this is 1994, that's a long time ago. And uh, Auschwitz back then was not what it looks like today. When we arrived, we were told that, uh, sorry, the concentration camp was closed. We did a lot of hemming and hawing, a lot of pushing, a lot of fighting because we're from New York. And there were reporters there and they started taking interviews. And I said, this country hasn't changed. They wouldn't let Jews leave concentration camps. Now they won't let Jews into concentration camps. We were approached by a couple of Israeli security guards who said, listen, you're making a lot of noise, but do you understand that the concentration camp is closed because the prime minister of Israel was visiting? The prime minister at the time was Zayn Tzachak Rabin. And these officers said, listen, you know what? You made so much noise. The prime minister wants to know if you want to join him and his delegation for a tour of the camps. Well, so I got oh, a tour. I was a part of a private tour of Auschwitz with Yitzhak Rabin. That's pretty cool. And if you've ever been to Auschwitz, you know that the way in which you go in the circular path into the camp, you see some of the political prisoner prisons and you go through some of the museum parts and, and there's a gas chamber and then you go through some of the bunkers, which are all horrific. And at the very end, when you're about to leave, there's a memorial for the 1.5 million Jewish kids that were murdered by the Nazis and the Poles that worked for them. I just broke down into everyone just started crying. Like it was just, it was just overwhelming. And I, I was left with this question that bothered me tremendously. It was, I wasn't willing to die for being Jewish. My family being Sephardic, not really having anyone who was lost in World War II. I definitely identified with Holocaust because of my Jewish brothers and sisters, but it was never personal in that way for me. It was never real. It was an idea. It was like history. So much of history is just hearing stories. But it became real and I felt at that moment that I wasn't willing to die for being Jewish. Like what a horrible tragedy that I would have been killed for being a Jew. And I felt that way because I had no idea what it meant to be Jewish. And I realized at that moment that if you are, if you don't know how to die for something, then you really, if you don't know, if you can't die for your cause or a belief, then you don't know how to live for that belief and cause. And I was very proud to be Jewish, but very little understanding of what that actually meant. And that's what started, that's what kicked me off of my journey. I ended up in Israel, ended up studying in a bunch of yeshivot, ended up coming back to America. I was a student at a Baruch. Back then, the illustrious CUNY was Brooklyn College. And uh, I studied there. I was a bio major that switched to a psych major. I never had any intentions of becoming a rabbi. 
my wife and I met at my senior year of college. We decided after we we're going to get married, we we're going to take our wedding money and spend one year investing and learning with each other, finding our schools. And that year became four years. And during that time, I was part of a rabbinical uh, seminary program and became a rabbi. I came back to the United States in 2002. I was a campus rabbi at Brooklyn College and I had a rabbi at the Hill House. I was a chaplain at Lyon University. And from there, I ended up working for something called Gateways. I was very involved in building something called Rage's Russian American Jewish Experience. And currently, I am working at the Safra Synagogue for something called Fazak, with a K at the end, working on building Sephardic programs for my brothers and sisters in the New York area. That's me. Thank you so much for sharing. I had no idea you'd been to Auschwitz with Yitzchak Rabin before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have those. I have a couple of really cool pictures with him. <laughs> that's, that's really Throwing cool. up some gay yeah. signs. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> that's not your typical Baltruva story. No, it's not your typical Baltruva story, but you know, it, it's a story of someone who is searching for truth. I think that that's the real Baltruva story, meaning like well, so much of what we do is often motivated by emotion or circumstance. And while that was very emotional, the driving force was looking for truth. And I think that is at the backbone of your search in life, your quest, looking for truth. Like what is true, which is something our generation, unfortunately, is losing out on because we live in a postmodernistic reality where there are no truths. There's something called post-truth. But if we are actually looking for truth and that's what's driving you, you'll find it. The ideology is not truth. It's my truth or your truth. Yeah. It's a Truth is subjective. In 2017, I believe, the Webster's Dictionary that chose a word to define that year, and the word was post-truth. Post-truth. And post-truth means there is no truth. It's just my emotional, psychological well-being defines my truth. That's interesting. It's super subjective. <laughs> Concerning. Yeah. I also, I read somewhere that Webster's Dictionary changed the definition of the word literally to mean figuratively. So now there isn't a word in the English language that means, that means literally. literally. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Wow. All right. Very telling of where we are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can inject, inject some truth in our lives with something from Mesirati uh, Shalim. If you want to pull up the excerpt. Rabbi, I remember you had previously mentioned that Mesirati Shalim, which is written by the Ramchal, was yeah. probably one of your favorite writers in the last 250 years. Yeah. Before we jump in, can you just give us a little bit of a background as to maybe why you love his writing so much? Well, first of all, you have to remember that he was a, you know, a prodigy. The guy was a genius. He wrote most of these, but most of his works were written before he was 22. I think he wrote Mesirati Shalim when he was 18 years old. You're looking at the mind of a genius. He died at a very young age. He died when he was 39. His wife and two children died before him. He watched them die after he could not figure, he couldn't find himself in Europe because of the Mishabist era of um, Shabtai Tzvi, which was a time in Jewish history where Jews, especially especially the rabbis, were afraid of mystics. And certainly the Ramphal was a mystic. You know, imagine him clean-shaven, wearing the clothing of a Renaissance man, poofy pants and like fancy ruffled shirt and a red cape. So he did not wear the dress of a typical rabbinic figure. So they were very intimidated by him and he was a genius. So they were scared that he would start a movement and basically he was pushed out of Europe, which is kind of sad. He ends up moving to Israel and settles down there and he's really, he ends up selling his own stuff. He does his manuscripts, by the way, today are found in the museum of Moscow and they ended up being purchased a couple hundred, a hundred years ago by a guy named Ginsburg, part of the Ginsburg library. 
And I'm pretty sure you could find the Xaviad, the actual handwritten text of the Mesilla Isherim in the Museum of Moscow, Moscow wow. Museum today. So I love him because he was a raw genius. I love him because of how organized his mind is. And you see that very clearly in his book, Der Hashem, which is like a very step, a step-by-step book to understanding the most deepest principles of Judaism, how they flow from like God to man and man to Israel and so on and so forth. Nesil Isharim is a different type of work. Now, I mean, most people don't know, but there are actually two different texts of Nesil Isharim that exists. One is a thematic version, right? Which is what you don't have in front of you, that this is a polished version. But originally, the way in which he actually wrote the Nesil Isharim, he wrote a dialogue between himself and someone else. He created a fictitious dialogue. Interesting. And that dialogue later was distilled into the Nesil Isharim that we have today. Wow. So we have both copies. Interesting. Now, what makes it so profound is that this is actually the first self-help book read based on Jewish principles. What about Shara B'Tachon? Shara B'Tachon is not really self-help. Shara B'Tachon is about trusting Hashem. It's about understanding man's nature. This is a little bit different. This is really a step-by-step guide to help a person reach some highest level of holiness, which is ultimately a nevoah, which we don't have today, prophecy, which is lost. But this is a step-by-step guide to help a person reach the highest expression of themselves. Now, this is the mistake that most people make about thinking about their own Judaism, and that is that we think that Judaism is a religion. It's not. Judaism is a system developed for peak performers that want to live a life of excellence. It demands excellence. So when I go through the Mitzelia Sharim, I see the mind of someone who is driven by truth, driven by a deep philosophical need to express truth and to express the highest spiritual expressions of truth in this world. So I was always drawn to it. I think it's an important text to be Jewish and not to learn Messiah Sharim is a, uh, is a massive mistake. So much of uh, the great self-help books of the 20th and 21st century are steeped in so much what's written in this book. So yeah, I, I love it. Thank you for the introduction. On to the Pasuk now. This is in Mesilat Yasharim, chapter 2. And take it away. Z'achim ha'adam mepakeach al atzmo, which means that if a person is watchful of himself, then az ha'kadosh baruch hu ozro v'inatzol min ha'yetzahara. And if a person is careful, he's, uh, he creates boundaries for himself, then God will give him the help necessary to save him from something called the yetzahara, the evil inclination. This is a fascinating, uh, I'm not sure why you chose this. There's a lot to speak in this book, about in this book, but uh, I'll, I'll tell you like this. I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is because there's this, I, this a concept that there is a tension within man where he has to be redeemed and saved. And we don't think of ourselves in that way. We're just like, I am who I am. I'm not, I'm not in trouble, am I? I'm already doing wrong. Most people think they're good people because they're not doing anything bad. I'm not killing, I'm not stealing, I'm paying my taxes, I'm going to school, I don't cheat. I'm honest, so I must be a good person. And that's a mistake that most people make. To be good in Judaism means that you are proactively working on being good. Just because you're avoiding doing bad does not make you good. I often find older people, like people my parents' age, making this mistake. You know, like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not stealing. Like, who am I hurting? No. In Judaism, to be good means you're proactively working on good. And I think that's what he's getting at over here. If I'm a dumb, but if a person is being watchful of himself, which really means 
if a person has a system that he has designed or she has designed for themselves to allow them to grow beyond where they are. So you have a human being that is born, not like any other creature. Every other creature is born with all the wisdom and knowledge they, they are going to need. But human beings are born without sefel. We have no brain, no mind. We're lacking a tremendous amount of information. And what ends up happening as a result of our lacking of information, we are born into a world with all sorts of expectations and, may, and even often a misunderstanding of reality. So the Torah's view is that like, of course, we live in a physical world, there's materialism, but there's also something called spiritual spirituality, there's a soul. Our job is to figure out a way of marrying the two. The nature of the human body is that it will choose to do that which is easy. That requires the least amount of effort. I say this often, if, you have a, if your brain has a choice between remembering something and forgetting it, what's it gonna do? It's gonna forget. Path of and least resistance. Always the path, the path of the least resistance. If your body has a choice between burning fat or muscle for energy, what's it going to burn first? Most people are surprised when they find that it's muscle, muscle first. And the reason for that is because muscle costs a lot, a lot of energy. You have to have a lot of protein. You've got to convince the body. There's a lot of, of resources around you to keep that muscle. So the body is always interested in being super efficient. And therefore, if you are not proactively working the body, working the mind, or even working the soul, you start losing it. Now, he's saying like this, that we are not in control of the result. And this is another mistake I make. We make people make, I did this, I, where are the results? You're not in control of the results. You know, you're in control of, you're in control of the effort. And therefore he's saying that you have to put together the system. How are you being watchful over yourself? What are you, boundaries are you creating for yourself? What kind of rules and regulations are you living by? Or are you just doing whatever you want to do? And if you're doing whatever you want to do, you're less than an animal because at least the animal knows what he or she is supposed to do. For a human being to express their full potential or their actual identity, it requires a tremendous amount of thought. It requires a tremendous amount of effort on your part to clarify who you are and where you want to. If you're doing nothing, if you're letting life happen, then you're just an expression of your environment. You're an expression of your culture and society. You're not thinking you're part of what I call the zombie apocalypse. You're part of the walking dead, right? So he right. understands over here that someone who is putting together a system to watch over himself, the guy, he has guidelines that helps him achieve his mission in this world. Then God will help him be overcome from his evil inclination. Now the inclination is misunderstood. The evil inclination is not necessarily evil. The evil inclination is an expression of man's choice. There's only, there's only something called Yetzer, right? There's desire. All of us have it. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not we use that desire for good or bad, that's on us. And once we choose it in a negative way, it becomes the evil inclination. When we choose it in a positive way, that becomes a Yetzer Tov, a positive inclination. But the desire is there. You could use it to do absolutely nothing. Laziness destroys the human being, destroys the world. Or you could focus that energy by creating a vision for yourself, being proactively working on making a life happen. And it becomes tof. And when I do that, that's when God comes and helps you. He pulls you out of a place of yetzer, uh, into a place of yetzer and tov. So I, I think that's where he's getting out over here. Thank you. That was really interesting. One thing that I 
that actually reminded me of a conversation Eitan and I were having yesterday was uh, you mentioned how the effort is our job, but the results is up to a Kodesh That's food. right. And that reminds me of something from Pilkei Avlaz, from Ethics of Our Fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Which means that it's not, the job is not on you to finish, but you are not free to be exempt from it. Right. Which, yeah. which I, I think is a lot of the same idea. Same idea. It's based on that idea, actually. It's based on yeah. that idea. You know, like we, we often are afraid of trying because of failure. There's a quote I used to have in my office. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? Right. Yeah, it's, mm. I think that's a really important idea, I mean, especially for our generation. Mm-hmm. We have the highest rate suicide is in college students and you know i've I, unfortunately i have a couple of family friends who are among that number sorry about and in both cases they left behind notes or texts that basically said that they were too afraid to let everybody down so they decided to just walk away from it and wow. i think that you know if if they had this idea instilled in them at an earlier age right afraid of failure yeah so the people are so afraid of failure they're paralyzed they they refuse to go on and i think that this is one of one of the most important things in judaism i can only say that i am where i am because of how much i failed (laughs) i i I mean failure is one of the most amazing recipes for success you have to fail the greatest people most successful people on the planet are people who are willing to take the risk to fail Failure is awesome. I love it. <laughs> if you know Sir Richard Branson, the serial entrepreneur, he started maybe like 30 companies and I don't know how many have been successful, but the ones that have hit, hit hard. The other ones failed, right. but you know, he took so many chances in the business world that he was able to do well with the ones that did well. Have a interesting statistic for you guys since you're both students of, of uh, Baruch. Wharton is one of the most preeminent business schools in the country. Yes. And what's interesting is that I have many friends who are in big fortune 500 companies and they tell me they, they would much rather hire a kid from Baruch business than a kid from Warren. Why? Right. This is the logic. Kids from Warren have been trained so thoroughly to be risk averse. They're not willing to take any chances. And because they are carrying such a prestigious degree and they spend so much money on tuition, they expect huge salaries. And it's harder to give them a starting position in the big firm with a culture, with all culture and so on and so forth. They found though, that kids that are coming from like a CUNY who have a good work ethic are more malleable and in the long run will do better and be more successful than those kids that went to those bigger Ivy League schools. Well, it's, it reminds me of something else. I was a student at Brooklyn college and part of my core back then, the core curriculum was you had to take an accounting class. And so I, uh, the professor's giving back his papers and he said something that was very striking. He said, I have good news and bad news. He's like this, this, the pay, the school, the tests were mixed. He's like, you have two groups in this, in this class, A's and C's, no B's. Right. He says, the good news is that the people with the A's are going to get great jobs. He's the bad news is that probably going to end up working for the guys that got the C's. Why? Because the guys with the C's are most likely going to take 
riskier chances in their businesses and a result of them trying and failing and trying again, most likely will have the opportunity of creating something that the guys at the A's wouldn't even bother trying because they are so afraid of failure. I think part of that also within the CUNY system is it's really an immigrant-based system. 100%. And they have to take the risks. Yep, they didn't have the like, same opportunity. Yeah. Um, this kind of reminds me of a little uh, Marshall of parable. Mm-hmm. Uh, God comes, it's also kind of a joke, I guess. God, God comes down to this guy and says, I'll give you anything you want, but you have to do one thing for me. The guy says, okay. He says, you see that rock over there? This big, this big rock sitting in the middle of a clearing. You push on that every day, once a day, and you've got everything you want. The guy goes and pushes on the rock and suddenly everything around him changes. He's got the best family, he's rich, he's successful, everybody loves him, he gets whatever Aaliyah he wants, a chul, everything. And every day he pushes on the rock. A year goes by, two years go by. He starts to like kind of forget what the connection is. So he says, you know what, I'm not going to push the rock all day. I'll push it for 10 minutes a day. And he goes and he pushes on the, on the rock 10 minutes a day. And after, even after years of pushing this rock, it hasn't budged at all. So he says, you know what? I mean, I'm not moving this rock. I'll, I'll go sit I'll, I'll, for my lunch break. I'll go sit and I'll have, I'll have lunch by it. And for like, for a couple of minutes, I'll just like put my hand on it. And then another couple of years later, it becomes, you know, I'm, I'll look out my window at it every day. And at a certain point, he just doesn't do anything with the rock. And God comes down and says, we had a deal. What's, what's going on? The guy says, look, I've been pushing, I pushed on that rock for years and it didn't budge. God, God says, I didn't ask you to move the rock. And I think basically the takeaway from that is, you know, whenever our job here happens to be, and everybody was put here for a very specific reason, God didn't ask us to move the rock. He just asked us to try to, to do, do what we can. And God takes the rest of the way. And again, I think this is one of the most central tenets of Judaism that we're, we are imperfect beings and we're going to stay imperfect beings, but we weren't put here to become perfect. We were put here to put in the effort and let God do the rest. This is what the Torah says in the Devarim where it says, Santa Lefenef at the Bracha with the Klala. God, I put before you today the blessing and the curse. We will fight them behind. But I want you to choose life. The Torah itself, Judaism, is really a book that was designed to empower a person to take control of his life with the understanding that I'm not responsible for the results. You know, obviously you take responsibility if you're doing something silly, right? But ultimately I just got to do my, my, my efforts. You know, I, I know two people, I have two friends that are doctors. One guy is super successful. The guy is poor. It's like, so he's bankrupt. Like he's going to close down his, he's, they both went to the same school, did the same exact stuff. Just one guy had bad fortune and another guy had great fortune and we're not here to evaluate success based on my results. I'm here based on my effort. The fun tsar agra, according to the pain is the reward. And that's what Afifamim have always been teaching us. Our, our sages believed that you and I, it doesn't really matter. And I say this to so many people. I meet so many you know, religious Jews. Say to them, you know, at the, end of the, at the end of your life, after 120 years, God won't be disappointed for you, you know, because you didn't keep Shabbat. He won't be upset. If you ate not kosher, you know, he'll be upset. He'll be upset that you didn't try to find the answer. And if you spent your whole entire life searching and didn't find it, I'm, I have a suspicion that you're probably going to think I did it. It's not about finding the answer. 
or, or having the answer. It's about fight. It's about, it's about searching for that's all we can do. Not everyone is zophetic at the answer. Not everyone has merits to have the answer. Not everyone has merits to see the, uh, the, the fruit of the labor. That's a blessing. Well, you and I, our job here is to make the choices that allow us to express the best of ourselves. That's it. Beautiful. I think that, uh, since changing the mindset as it became a little more religious, well, I don't even like the word religious so much. I prefer observant because I mean, you, you be more or less like, it's a, a weird, I guess, understand. Right. Um, I started changing the mentality and more focused on if I did my hishtadlut, if I did my best, then whether I fail or not, somehow, some way, this is success. This is what God wanted to happen. And I think once you take the idea of failure in the, the traditional sense out of your head and like, you know, you've tried and you know that for whatever reason, this is success. You just don't understand why yet. It takes a lot of that pressure out and it allows you to take more risks, obviously for good reason. You're not just going to jump off a building and say, maybe I'll fly. Like that's not the type <laughs> of risk I'm talking about. So right. please, if it, don't take unnecessary risks that have no benefit, right? You know, cost benefit analysis. We learned this in Baruch College quite a bit. Point being is that if you're really doing something and taking good risks and it doesn't work out, you know, to the outward world, it may seem like a failure, but I guess it's just internalizing and knowing that it's a success. You just don't understand it yet. Beautiful. I want to segue into focusing on something else within this verse. Of, sure. I thought the usage of the word mifakeas was pretty interesting because mm -hmm. usually in most Jewish texts that I've come across, the word they would use in the context of this type of verse would be shom. Shomel, right, to, to protect yourself or to watch, to watch over yourself. We use specifically mefakeh. And one, the one thought that came to mind, that I didn't see this anywhere, so you tell me if I'm totally off target. But the one thought that came to mind is, we say a blessing every morning, that he opens the eyes of the blind. And to me, what this means is that it's not necessarily that one has to be afraid that he's going to do something wrong, right. that he's, that he's going to sin. It's that one has to open his eyes to see what's around him. Yeah. To see what your surroundings are, because where a person puts himself, it almost doesn't matter how strong of an individual will that person has, they're going to be affected by their environment. So if a person opens his eyes and sees what's around him and puts himself in a good environment, then God through that environment will help him and save him from the etc. That's a nice, uh, nice interpretation. I would say that the chaos, you know, has to do with illuminating, like that's what you're saying. But it means being knowledgeable about himself and therefore understanding his weaknesses and strengths. Mm -hmm. And the implication is that once you're aware of what your own self, your weaknesses and your strength, and then you're trying. Right. Cause as, right. It says, as okay, therefore, if you're doing the right thing, then God will help you. But you have to first be aware of the self. You have to be aware that there's a, a dichotomy in each of us, that there's a part of us that wants to do absolutely nothing. Another part of us that wants to be super successful. And you have to start choosing which part of that narrative you want to start identifying with. So he's saying, once you become aware of who you are, of your nature, and you're working towards achieving something profound, 
God will give you the strength to overcome a challenge and you'll be successful. It's like they say that there's a, a great book you should probably read them if you haven't read it yet called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I have not read that book. One great of, book. Great book. And uh, one of the things that he, uh, he speaks about is like, you know, guiding the elephant and the elephant is the body and the body doesn't want to do anything. It's lazy. And if there's a dispute between the soul and the body, the, the body always wins. The elephant always wins. It's too powerful. But the way in which you get your body to align itself with the soul is being very clear about how the body will benefit from going where the soul wants to go. That means huh. that if you don't have a clear vision of who you want to be, where you want to go, what you want to accomplish, what your values are, what your core values are, your body, your body's not taking you anywhere. It's only when you sit down and recognize these are the things I want. I want to have a family. I want a home. I want children. I want to be successful. I want greatness. If you don't have that clear and the body is unsure about what your intentions are, you're never going anywhere. But once you clarify your values, your goals, your aspirations, once you have a vision in your mind's eye of what it means to be the best you, you'll see the body will start carrying you, which is probably why it's interesting to say, the Gemara Brachot says that the, uh, the schar, the, uh, the reward for going to a class is not listening and, and knowing the material. It's called schar halicha. It's the reward for attending. I don't know what you're going to come out of the class with. As a matter of fact, yeah, I give a class here twice a week. I, I guarantee you ask everyone that comes out, each one will say something completely different. Well, <laughs> but the, the effort that they put into just coming attending is the reward. And that's, that's, this is, this is an extensive extension of this. They're taking the first step. They're that's being right. watchful of themselves. Right. They're being mikpakeaf. They're being aware of like, this is where I know I need to be. I need to be in Kuft on Monday and Wednesday. I got to get my, <laughs> uh, my, my chicken or whatever it is, get the dumplings, you know, maybe I'll get some tour along the way. Oh, that's it. That's a good place for it. Yeah. So. As our listeners will know, I'm quite fond of stories and I'd like to tell another one. This one's sure. about, uh, Orpan Kanievsky. Sure. And it's actually also a story about Chuba. Okay. So there was once a father and son and the son were up really religious. The father was religious, but he went off the derif over the course of his teenage years. And at a certain point in his twenties, he came home and told his parents that he's going to marry a non-Jew, Aguya. And obviously the parents aren't happy about this, but it had been long enough that they had given up fighting with their son about this. So they said, why don't you come stay over for one Shabbat before, uh, before you go get married? Son says, okay, but I don't want to hear anything about dragging me to Shoal. I don't want to hear any of this. Father says, okay. So Friday night comes, he asks to try gently, son, do you want to come to Shoal with me? Oh, thank you. And he goes to smoke a cigarette out on the porch. Okay. Same thing happens Shabbat morning, comes to right before when they would normally pray Mincha, Shabbat, and the father says to the son, I'm going to hear a shir by Rufan Kanievsky. Do you want to come? Son says, sure. Father's a little bit weirded out, but he doesn't want to scare him off, so he doesn't say anything. They go to the shir. Now, after the shir, it's traditional that whenever there's a crowd by one of the big rabbis, everybody goes and shakes the rabbi's hands, says Shabbat Shalom, asks for a bracha maybe. So the son goes and shakes the rabbi's hand and Rabbi Kanievsky hold on, holds on to him, doesn't let him, doesn't let him leave after two seconds like everybody else. He says, uh, what's your name? Tells him his name. Do you keep Shabbat? Do you keep kosher? No rabbi, I've actually, I hadn't really kept anything in a few years. He says, have you ever thought about doing tshuva? 
son thinks about it for a second. He goes, here, from time to time, I've thought about it. How long each time? Well, I don't know, 10 minutes, maybe once a year, 10 minutes, like right before him kippul or something. And how many, how many years have you been thinking about doing chuba? 10 minutes a year? Four years? 40 minutes, uh, or if I'm response to him, 40 minutes of thinking about chuva, you get scar just for that. The son walks away, like, completely shocked that one of the biggest rabbis of the generation would give him such high praise, even though he, he doesn't keep anything for just thinking about doing chuva. And eventually, he does chuva. But there's a part two to the story. At some point later, the father asked the son, you know, I'm very happy that you did tshuva. I'm very happy that you're religious now. You married a, a nice Jewish girl. But what, what made you decide to come with me to the shir in the first place? Oh, that's what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and he tells the following story, which to me is Judaism in a nutshell. He says, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I was in Feder. And one time, our class went on this trip to Kamenevsky's office. And the, the way it would go is he would ask every kid a question of what we were learning that week. And if we got it right, we got a candy. This was like when he was in like third grade. So I happened to be last in line that day or second to last in line. And every kid answers the first question, gets his candy and keeps going. Comes to me. And he asks me a question and I think about it and I go, I don't know. I don't know the answer. So Rabkanesky says, no worries. Give me another question. So he gave me another question. And I thought about it. And I still didn't know the answer. And this time he gave me another question. And I know based on the question that it was an easy question. But I still didn't know the answer. And at this point I was almost crying. I was really frustrated. I didn't know the answer to any of the questions. And Rabkanesky pulls me aside. He says, stand next to me. The kid after me goes, and then he pulls me aside. He takes me into his private study. And I'm terrified. I, I'm thinking I'm about to get it from the biggest rabbi of our generation. I'm, I'm dead. And Rukhani pulls out three candies, and he says, in Judaism, we get rewarded for trying, not, not necessarily for getting the results. So here's three candies. Yeah. So when you told me to come to a shir by Rukhani I remembered that. And I remembered him as being one of the only figures who was kind to me within this, within the Orthodox community. So I decided, why not? And the power to me of number one, being kind to another Jew, no matter what's going on, but also the power of this lesson of getting rewarded for trying, of getting rewarded for really putting, giving it your all, even if you don't, even if you come up short, right. is to me, one of the driving forces of Judaism. Right. Beautiful. So true. It is. It's a beautiful story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So <laughs> on that note. Yeah. Um, my question. So we, we learned, you know, a very deep concept today. How do we go from here and dissect this? How do we bring this to our lives? How do we make a positive impact on our own lives with what we learned today? Sure. I think that if you were going to ask that question, the Ramchal, what he would say to you is that you have to have a picture of where you want to go. So do you have a three month, six month, 12 month goal set up for yourself? Do you have a one year, three year, five year goal set up for yourself? Do you have a one year, three year, five year, 10 year goal set up for yourself? If you don't have very clear milestones that you've created for yourself, then you're going to end up going nowhere. 
We've been through schooling from elementary school, high school, and even college. Some level, you're surrounded by some kind of a system. And that system is designed to help you do one thing and one thing alone, get a career. But it's not about learning how to live life. And therefore, you have to clarify what your terms, like what does it mean to be in a marriage? What does marriage mean? What is love? Uh, what does it mean to be a father or a mother? What, are, what defining your terms? You want to become someone who's intellectual, someone who lives life guided by their mind and not their heart. And that's what Minasiyah Yisharim is about. It's about giving a person the tools necessary to remind them that they're intellectual beings that have the power of choosing beyond their moral, lower aesthetic desires. And I think that when we just clarify who we are, where we're going, you'll find a tremendous amount of success, which is ultimately what we all want. We want success. Success is, you know, I'll tell you, I'll share a story. I'll give you, I'll give you a story for a story. Uh, this is a story I heard from Rabbi Lawrence Kelman. It was my Rebbe. And he was, uh, his Rebbe was Ravolbi. Ravolbi, famous Samosur rabbi and wrote, author of Ale Shore. And they were standing on a bus stop at Yira in Harnop. And the sun was setting. And if you've ever been to Harnop, you know, it's just a beautiful, beautiful uh, yeah. landscape and the scenery. Sun is setting. And at the bus stop, they're watching these birds dip down into the valley and lift up their wings and the hot air pulls them straight up like a balloon. So Rav Kalman looks at Ravalbi and says, Psh, how beautiful is that? So Ravalbi looks at Rav Kalman and says, if you did what you were meant to do in this world, when people saw you, they'd also say, Psh. <laughs> we marvel at watching animals doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. If we are clear about what we're meant to be doing, we become what we call a Kiddush Hashem. You become a, someone who's a living embodiment. That's beautiful. Especially, you know, spirituality. So that's what this is. This, this concept and this particular parak of the Shireem is about allowing you to get to that place where you're able to express the best of you. It doesn't happen on its own. It's something you have to be proactively working, which is why Limura Torah and Kimil Chasadim are the two ingredients necessary for success. You gotta be proactive. Either you're the kind of person that's being proactively thinking about the needs of the other, the individual, the club, the community, wherever it is. And that's one way of getting there by thinking beyond the self. And the other way is by putting yourself into an intellectual process of clarifying your terms. What do you believe? What do you do? How do you do it? And so on and so forth. Yeah. Beautiful. I was going to ask, where do you start with that? But you, you kind of take care of all of that. Sorry. <laughs> I knew where you were going. Well. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for joining My us. My pleasure, gentlemen. Having thank a, you so much. Thank you so much for having um, This is a lot of fun. A lot of, lot of fun. Thank you so much. Love great. to have you again sometime. Looking forward to it. God willing, boys. And thank you all for listening. Thank, thank you, you so much. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.